Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, Rob Gonzalez, the CMO and co-founder of Salsify joins me. Now, I was really excited to chat with Rob because I felt like there was a lot of similarities between his path where he founded a company and took on that CMO title. Now, his background's different than mine, ironically. He's more the programmer. I'm definitely not the programmer, but he talks about the need to be focused. And as much as he has all these different skills, I love that his focus was on where was his ability to add the most value to the organization. Not just in terms of his ability, but also the tactics that the company continue to take on as they scale. Now, to give you an idea of the type of scale that we're talking about, this is a company now doing over 130 million in ARR. This is a company that's raised over $450 million and has 700 employees, a marketing team of over 40. So this is a company with true scale. In just 11 years, they've grown this business. And Rob talks about that one strategy that one play that they continued to rinse and repeat and how he avoided the temptations of various other strategies that he'd read about on blog posts or that his team would hear another peer might say, this is what we've got to try next. That focus has been the key and I'm sure you're going to take a ton away from this episode. Here's my chat with Roth. Rob, I am thrilled to have you on the podcast. I feel like your journey may have some similarities to mine where you gave yourself the CMO title, chatting with your co-founder. Does this make most sense? How do we scale? But you've gone on to huge success. I mean, this is a company now doing over 130 million in recurring revenue. So some part of that decision had to be right, but let's go back to how it was made. Yeah, it is. I'm kind of an accidental CMO as as you as you described the the way that it was made is in the early days when we were first standing the company up um, I was doing all things go to market uh, sales marketing the cold calling I was traveling all over the country just trying to talk to anybody who would who would talk to me uh, my background is in engineering product development product management product marketing over the years uh, so it would have been the first time that I'd really been on the road doing sales and I did a lot of the initial sales. Uh, my co-founder, Jason, who's the CEO, and I did uh, all the initial demos and negotiations and all that type of stuff. And once we got to a point where we had product market fit, we hired a professional head of sales, John DeVagian. He took us from about a million and a half ARR to about 50, 52. Uh, he, he was amazing. And then uh, I first head of marketing, Michelle, who had come from Constant Contact and knew about large scale uh, you know, consumer marketing and, and SMB marketing. And so we brought them on and uh, Salsify has a kind of peculiarity about the market that we're in, which is that we're not really just a SaaS product. We're a SaaS product that has a network component to it. So our primary customers are manufacturers. Think Coca-Cola, L'Oreal, Mars, folks like that. But to make them successful with our product, we have to have integrations with retailers that sell their products, the Walmarts, the Amazons, the Home Depots, the Wayfarers of the world. 
So building the network was critical for us. So as soon as we had initial product market fit and we had somebody to run sales and run marketing, I switched over to do business development to try to build out the network. When Michelle left, we had been going up market. So her, her key uh, skill set was SMB marketing. As our ASP went up, as we became a little bit more enterprise focused, she opted out. She wanted to go to another company that did uh, SMB. And more I took over her, marketing. Her sweet spot. Yeah, it's her sweet spot. It's what she loved doing. And she, she was wonderful for us uh, and you know, parted ways happy. And, and so I took over marketing as a interim head of marketing. And since I had run it before and I built the original BDR team that does the telemarketing, I took over the team. I had experience doing SEO and SEM in a previous company. And so I revamped digital marketing, revamped the XDR team. This was when we were on the triple, triple, double, double, double part of the, the growth curve. So we were doubling ARR every year and had to, had to rebuild marketing to keep up with that growth. So I did that for about a year and, and it worked out really well. And then we got a new head of marketing in. And again, I, I peeled off to build the retail network because that's a critical part of our business. Uh, the new head of marketing lasted about a year. Um, wasn't a great fit because he was more of a brand guy, very strong on brand. But the, what we need as, as a high velocity SaaS business is we needed somebody who was not just about brand, right? You need, to, you need to be good at math. You need to be good at the operational rigor. You need to be good at that daily, weekly, monthly pipeline grind that is high velocity SaaS. And, uh, and that wasn't really his, his thing. So, so he left and I, we ended up blowing up the marketing organization for a little bit. So I said, look, I, I, we need to build a retail network. I've got to focus there. So I took the brand element of it. We gave product marketing to product, and then we gave revenue marketing to our CRO and sort of split up marketing into, into three distinct functions. Uh, How long ago was this? This is 2000, so end of 2018. Okay, and how big was the company at that point? Oh, God. Uh, I'm going to say about 30 million ARR, give or take. Uh, it's, it's somewhere around there, right? I think we ended 18 around 32 34 million ARR. And so that didn't work that well. When we had product marketing in product and, and revenue marketing in sales, um, it just didn't work that well. And about a year in, we could tell that it wasn't working. So we ended up reconstituting marketing under me. So at that point, I had marketing, I had the retail alliances, and I had business development. And we, we had made an acquisition of a company that uh, had a founder that was really good at running the, the retail network. You know, for the retail network, we always felt you needed a founder type to, to execute the strategy because we're a small company. Walmart is a giant company. How do you get Walmart to take you seriously? If you're a founder, you have a little bit more credibility going into those offices. So when we, when we had the first real alternative to build a network, we were looking at uh, you know, my org and what we needed out of the company. And, uh, and I said, okay, I'll just this makes sense for him to run the network component. I'm, I'm kind of tired. It's been really hard to do that for the last bunch of years. I'll run marketing for a little bit and then I'll do something else. Um, so, so this is 2019. Yeah, I mean, it's I've enjoyed the job and I've, I think I've been good at the job and I've come to actually love marketing in the last few years, but I, I, did, not, I did not seek out to, to be this. It was, a, it was kind of a winding journey for me to end up in this role. That's wild. And, and I mean, we just kind of glazed from what you said, 2018, 2019, around 30 million to now being a company, you know, four or five times that size. So you're clearly making some of the right calls or those around you. But I, 
I find it interesting as as you walk us through that journey, and and I think that is the overlap between being a co-founder and being CMO. You look at your LinkedIn, it just says you've been CMO for 11 years, but there's a lot of these uh, shifts that are needed as, as the company reinvents. I'm curious why you never put on the product hat, given, as you said, you had product background. I did a little reading that you you were involved in building some of the original product for Salsify. Did you ever that have that temptation or was it really just bringing these products to the market that got you excited? It's, I mean, it's an interesting question. I, I think the, the, the real answer is I'm, there's a combination of things. So uh, there's three co-founders. Of the three, I may be the least good product leader. <laughs> and, uh, and then we also brought in um, Adam Ferrari, who was the CTO of Indeca, which Indeca exited to Oracle for over a billion dollars. So he's, he's a ridiculous product leader. And then we brought in Julie Marabella, who's um, to run product, who's also a ridiculous product leader. So I'm, I'm sort of surrounded by people that are actually better at this than I am. And, uh, and that's fine. Like the, the whole role of, of a founder is ultimately you're trying to hand off functions to people who are better at those functions than you are as you go up. A founder is kind of a super generalist. They're not a specialist in any particular domain. And the other thing is of three co-founders and a bunch of early employees, um, we're literally all introverts. I'm definitely introverted, but I might be the most outgoing introvert. And at some point you need somebody out there to tell the story and give the presentations and meet with executives and be on the airplane and meet with the press and all that type of stuff. And I think of a bunch of options, I might be like the least bad option for those types of things. We're not really an out there heavy PR press company, but you do need somebody to do those things. So um, I ended up doing, doing a lot more of that even in the early days for, for that reason. So a combination of things. I mean, you know, you're working with founders. We've been doing this almost 11 years. You kind of have to lean into what your strengths are and where you're happy doing work versus where you're unhappy doing work and you've got to share the load. And so that's ultimately why I ended up not doing product stuff. Uh, I love the product. I think we built a hell of a product, but you know, it didn't need to be me leading that. And, and I probably was not the best person to do it anyway. That's interesting. And, and it helps to have the, the passion for the product and the love for that product. And, and I imagine it at the same time, not that this is a pure marketing solution, but it's, it's a product marketing solution in itself. So having a marketer who believes in the product that must allow you, as you said, to get on the plane, jump to press and, and speak with context. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's helpful in a lot of, lot of ways. For example, um, in the early days, if we were doing a big IT sale, you know, I could be in the room and I could be credible and, and I could do a good job at that. When we were starting with the Foresters and the Gartners and the IDCs of the world to try to get into those leader quadrants, uh, I could lead that process and I could go deep down into the enterprise architecture questions that they wanted and the systems questions. And I, I understood what they were trying to get out of it. And so for us in the market that were in an enterprise software, being able to straddle that line between product and market and being able to tell stories clearly is a superpower. It's a, it's an extremely valuable skill. And it's one of those things that for us is, I think has been, been very useful. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Rob. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll get into some of that go to market and what you're out there saying right after this break on the marketer's journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. 
Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. Like Rob, I'm a co-founder of a business, and I, I can really relate to everything he just shared because there is always this debate, am I best for the role that we need that's in front of us inside of our company? And I think Rob's outlined a really logical path that any co-founder goes through as the company continues to scale and grow. He outlined the reality of the marketing leader they brought on early and the fact that they grew out of that marketing leader as well as that marketing leader grew out of them. And what we really need to be able to do as a founder or as a C-level member of our organization is assess who is right for the job in front of us today. And that's something I think all of us need to understand. If you want to get to that CMO title, whether you're a co-founder or whether you're at that C-level, the ability to assess the need for the business today and the right stakeholder that you have in your organization to take that on or that you need to bring in is something you always need to be assessing. So Rob, I've, I've already hit on the amazing growth that Salsify's had, and you've been in the CMO seat now for long enough to take some credit. <laughs> when you look back, what are some of the biggest things that you've prioritized? Yeah, I think for me, the key is in general, in marketing and sales, um, and this is in particular for a new logo acquisition, upsell is a little bit of a different beast, but for new logo acquisition, I'm a big believer of doing fewer things versus doing more things. And in marketing, there's kind of a death by a thousand cuts scenario that a lot of young marketers fall into. I talk to folks that are leading marketing at five, 10, $20 million companies, and they've got lean teams, you know, five marketers on their team, 10 marketers on their team. And they're trying to do every damn thing they read about online. So they're trying to, they've got SEO, they've got SEM, they've got contributed articles, they've got eBooks, they've got white papers, they've got webinars. They've got some cold calling that's going on. They're doing direct mail. They're experimenting with, with ABM. They've got Sixth Sense and they've got HubSpot and they've got you know a, a thousand systems that they're working on and so on and so forth. And it just seems exhausting and it's crazy town to me. And then they've got all these attribution problems, right? I'm, so they're trying to build these models to understand of all these channels that I'm spending money and time on, what's working and what's not working and like, what can I fine tune and blah, 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 blah. Where do you think that pressure comes from? Like, do you think it's it's reading the next blog post or your board yelling in your ear that you got to be doing this because another another investment's doing it well? Oh yeah, it's it's marketing influencers and whatnot. It's like it's kind of like with fitness, you know what I mean? Like, if you do fitness influencers, what's the fitness that matters? And you're gonna hear like ten thousand ideas, like, oh my god, if you're not doing four minutes of dead hang every single day, you're definitely gonna die at sixty or you know what I mean? It's 
And then you, you get these people with their morning routines. And I've got two little kids, six and three. And some, some of these morning routines sound like they take 14 hours. You know, you get up out of bed and you do an hour of meditation and then you do your yoga and then you've got a, you do 15 minutes of sunlight outside and then you have your protein smoothie and then you, and then you pick up your phone. It's like, God, it seems it's just totally exhausting. You know, I roll out of bed and I just hope that I'm up before my daughter and that's my morning routine. And, and so I, I think that there is this influencer culture where people are looking for the answer and they're given 10,000 answers and they're unsure which of those 10,000 answers matters. And so they kind of try a little bit of all of them. Right. And I, I think that's what happens with marketing. Um, I think that's what happens with startups. I think that's what happens in a lot of areas of life. And my experience at Salsify is if you have a single go to market motion that works and that can scale, just do that. Like that's what you should do until you have evidence that you're tapping it out and you need to add a second motion. And so for us, for the first 100 million of ARR, for sure, the motion that worked was uh, we created really compelling thought leadership content. And then we had, and we presented it in webinars. And then we promoted those webinars via cold calling and cold emailing. And then for people that attended those webinars, we would convert them to a sales meeting. Um, More or less, that's the motion that worked for the first 100 million of ARR. And it meant that, for example, we, we really didn't do much social. You could look us, look us up on Twitter. There's posts, but it's not a focus of, of what we're doing. You know, you look us up on LinkedIn, you know, there's posts. It's not a focus of what we're doing. And so we, there's a lot of things that we just didn't do. And now we're at a scale where we're adding in a couple motions. One of them's a partner motion with, Mm-hmm. The Accentures and Deloitte's and Amplifies and whatnot of the world. Um, another one's a partner motion with the Shopify's and Adobe's of the world. But you know, we're only we're doing that now. We're not. We didn't. We weren't doing those things five, six, seven years ago. Um, so, so I think my view here is, if you've got a if you've got a pony that is going fast that you can ride, just stay there. Make that better. Do one thing really, really well, and you're going to be way better off than if you're trying to do 50 different things and experimenting with everything that's under the sun. So that's, that's kind of my, that's kind of my hot take. I love that. I, you know, I, I think it's interesting hearing you explain it. And, and earlier you were talking about the 10 person marketing team. That's probably 10% of an organization that's, you know, under a hundred people, uh, you know, your, your marketing teams, I believe just over 40 on 700 people. And I'm I'm curious, has there been temptations either by you or some of those marketers who have joined to say, we got to do more, we got to try some of these other things? And and do you allow that or do you really set those guardrails that you described? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we fell into that trap a little bit between 2020 and the end of 2022, where we had, we had reached scale, COVID happened. And then we also, um, when COVID happened, we, we ended up buying a couple companies internationally in 2021. We bought a company in France. We bought a company in Australia. And over the course of two and a half years, we went from like 300 employees to like 800 employees. And due to some, you know, picking up employees and acquisitions in departments and, and also opening up the floodgates on financing a little bit to, uh, to run some experiments, marketing was bigger. I mean, we added a lot of people in marketing. We had uh, 70, 80 people in marketing at peak. And part of that was we need to we need to make sure that we diversify the pipeline a little bit. We 
open open the spigot to spending a lot of different experiments. And the, our experience doing that was that when you try to do a lot of things, almost none of them work. For marketing to work, marketing marketing is not sort of its own independent entity within a company. It exists to make sales better. It exists to make customer interactions better, right? It, it doesn't exist other than to help other functions. That's that's marketing in, in some ways a subordinate function in that way. And uh, if you're trying to do a lot of things in marketing, it's very difficult for the other other groups in, within your organization to really absorb what you're up to and to interact with it and to be a part of what you're doing um, in a way that's effective. And you need those interaction points for, for them to come along the journey. So we, I mean, we, we really, I think, overextended ourselves on activities and ended up pairing back the team um, and the, the investment to the activities that were valuable and that could work. Um, I mean, we're not the only SaaS company to do this in the last year, but uh, but you know, my lesson specifically in marketing was that we were, you know, we had gone away from the thing that made us great, which was focusing on a core motion. We'd extended ourselves to many different motions, and by doing lots of different experiments all at once, nothing took hold. So you know, the the move now is we're a lot more careful about let's just run one or two experiments. Let's make sure that we've got core alignment across the departments, and when one of them starts paying off, like partner marketing, let's you know, let's cautiously ramp up the investment in, in the areas that are working versus trying to do all the things. Interesting. Yeah. I, I want to come back to that play that you described that was working so well. So that's the idea of having this premium content in webinar format and then using your XDR, which is your version of the BDR or SDR team to reach out and, and you know engage with customers with that. Now, just to, to clarify, because uh, and, and I'll tell you a quick story, Rob, which was I was chatting with a demand gen leader just last week, and they they were talking about how budgets are tight. Uh, they had to cut their ABM platform, which they you know refer to as essentially their digital advertising platform. And in their mind, now they can't do ABM, um, which is maybe flawed. Uh, but did you view this as as ways that you would also take more of a personalized ABM approach? Meaning, did you still need ads to complement that outreach, or were you able to simply continue to use that XDR to break through? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think so much depends on the category that you're playing in. We were creating a new category. And simply put, like we sell to manufacturers, and the problem that we help them uh, solve is multi-channel marketing, multi-channel content management. So your Coca-Cola, you sell on Amazon, Walmart, Instacart, DoorDash, you know, you've got your products on Google. Every single one of those websites looks different, right? They've got dim different image dimensions, image counts. Are videos allowed or are they not allowed? If they're allowed, how long can they be? How long is the product title? Can you use the trademark symbol in the product title or not? And, and you know, there's all this, all this different uh, data between these, these companies. And so we help them manage that. Um, that's a new problem that didn't even really exist 10, 15 years ago. So it was a new category. And the thing about new categories is nobody searches for them. So to get to your question, advertising can do a couple different things. One of those things you can do is, is use it for demand capture. And that's like pay-per-click. So if somebody's searching for the problem that you solve, you want to capture them and convert them. The other thing that advertising can do is it can drive brand awareness. My, my, in the category that, that we work in, there isn't a good option for advertising to drive brand awareness. I, I can't pay to get 
a Salsify ad effectively in front of a VP of e-commerce at Coca-Cola. It's just not, not something that you know, works that well for us, even with the ABM tools. So um, I, these days, it's a little easier. Uh, you know, six cents, I think, was what we use. We, we're happy with it. We're experimenting with ads there. But, you know, five, six years ago, those options really weren't on the table. So the, the, the way to build a brand awareness and get your name out there and have people even, you know, aware that there's something to solve this problem that they have is through cold outreach. And the, the way that I treated that, the way that we treated the BDR uh, outreach for years is they were the tip of the spear for the brand, they're the tip of the spear for the category. We're, we didn't want them just sending emails saying, hey, mister, I see that you work for Coca-Cola, please take a 15 minute meeting with me. You know, we, what we wanted them to do was to send an email saying, hey, I looked at Coke products on Amazon. Here's a few tips on how to improve them. You know, good luck. Right. And then another one would be, by the way, we've got we're doing a webinar with Amazon's employees. Amazon is going to explain some tips for product detail, page improvement. Would you like to attend this webinar? Right. And then we would send them, here's an ebook on what you heard in the webinar. And so we're, we're adding a lot of value. And I tried to have these cadences that were like, give, 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 get, give, 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 get in the cold outreach. So you're not really asking for an, uh, a, you know, a meeting until the fourth email. And what we found actually is that when you're doing these cadences, people will eventually come to Salsify's website and they might register for a demo, but it's not the people that you are contacting. You know, they, they get a good email from you and then they forward it to another employee in the organization and then that employee comes to your website. So for us, the SDR program really was, I, I did look at it as advertising for us. I did look at it as a brand building. I did look at it as category building in addition to the, you know, the meetings and the, the, the opportunities that they were, that they were generating for us. And so, yeah, so, so for us, the way that you framed it is right for, I think for the category that we are in, which is a category we created, um, and especially given when this tactic was used most, you know, 2012 to 2020, that, you know, that, that motion was a superior motion for us versus trying to advertise our way to brand awareness and, and brand building. I love that. It's, it's such a simple play, but to your point, it was the right play. And, and I think that's, the mindset that everyone should take away from this is this is not this is the playbook but you know to rob's point it's you know find the one play that's going to break through and you know invest in that big versus sprinkling everywhere and wearing out your team rob some great tidbits of advice here uh, we're going to take one more break here we'll be back with some rapid fire questions on the marketer's journey It was really refreshing to hear Rob talk about focus. Now, not just focus at any point, but focus as they scaled. They've gone, as he said, from a company doing around 30 million to now over 100 million. And I think many of us get tempted to say, well, we've got to layer in more strategies to grow faster versus really doubling down on what is working. Now to do that, as Rob said, you have to be really strong at looking at channels and being able to prove what is working and what can be optimized. The area he's talking about is a very basic play. 
It's one where we leverage a really valuable piece of content, perhaps a webinar in his case or an ebook. We send that out and we use various strategies. The strategy he's doubled down on is BDRs and SDRs. And when we do that, we need to think about what is that experience we put in front of buyers? How are we enabling them at the end of the day? Are we using a tool like a sales off outreach, which I chatted with Rob later, outreach is part of his stack. And similarly, are we looking at ways to package that content with other relevant content? That's the area of digital sales rooms and being able to pull content assets together. It's a big thing Uberflip does. So think about that one play and then think about how you continue to improve it as you scale. Rob, we've crossed through your career journey. We've talked a little bit about buyer journey and the simplicity there. When you think about the next marketer and the plays that they need to run, what is the biggest skill they should have to become a CMO? Oh, man. The best place I would answer this, I would refer to another former CMO and CEO, a guy named David Kellogg. He writes a blog. He's been writing a blog for 15 years called Kellblog. I've been following him the whole time. Uh, he's out of Bend, Oregon. He's wonderful. He was originally the CMO of Business Objects, if anyone is old enough to remember BO back in the day. So David's amazing. But he has a post called the, I think it's the future CMO or the, the new skills of the future CMO or something like that. And he goes through the evolution of the CMO over 20 years, which, which I think is a fascinating evolution because right? I didn't live you know the first 10 of those 20 years uh, doing marketing. And it used to be the case that CMOs were largely on some level like brand people and maybe and then, then it was like you're responsible for the top of the funnel and now you're responsible for top of funnel and conversion rates through the funnel and then it's just like the the integration into marketing into more and more parts of the the funnel all the way through upsell is significant and then he kind of breaks down what that means right and there's a sort of quantitative revenue marketing grind the pipeline skill set there's a product excellence and product marketing skill set. There's a brand excellence, brand building skill set. There's a org design, people management skill set. And you generally don't find somebody who's like an A plus at all four of those. You're going to find people that are stronger or weaker and, you know, myself included on, on different aspects of that stack. And, uh, and so, so my view, if somebody wants to be a CMO, these days, the ones that matter the most are the quantitative revenue marketing stuff. Even if you're a brand person, if you do if you do not have a comfort with numbers, like a really deep comfort with numbers and statistics and how to do cohort analysis and things like that, you just are not going to make it as a CMO. So I, I think that the the revenue marketing spreadsheety number stuff is is critical and you need to get comfortable with that. The other one that I'd say is more critical these days than ever is the um, people management and org, org design. And this is in particular because we're in this era where the free money spigot is off. You know, there was a 10 years where money was pretty cheap and now money's not so cheap anymore. And, and you've got you've to make do with what you've got and your, your team isn't going to be doubling in size. And, and so how do, you, how do you manage through that? There's all kinds of issues. There's issues like somebody's really great at their job, but you know, there's, there's no promotion path for them exactly. Right? What does that mean for them? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for the role? And those are hard conversations to have. And so ultimately, if I were going to pick like two skills for people to focus on, I would say those are the two 
critical skills that that are harder and harder to be optional. The other ones you can you can lean a little bit more on help for brand and on product marketing. I think I, as a CMO, I think those are a little for for a lot of companies. I think they're a little bit less less critical um, than than maybe they once were. Really, really, uh, really thoughtful response, both both in terms of the source and and how you've applied it. Rob, my my next question is is about how people break through with you. You know, I mean, you're you're a purchaser of technology. Of you know, you've got problems when people are trying to get through your inbox when their BDRs are trying to reach out. What gets you to actually accept? Oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I. The only the only that's meetings that's that, the most honest answer I've ever had to that question. Yeah, yeah. it's just I I I just don't have time, man. Um, it's delete, delete, spam, 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 delete. I mean, it's it's horrible to say, but it's the truth. Um, I mean, if you want to get to me, it's got to be through a warm connection, or it's good, sometimes it'll be through people m- much more junior in the organization. You know, you go to a senior manager, you get them excited. My people are pretty empowered. Somebody gets excited about a system, they bring it up the chain. You know, we just we recently purchased Aurum, which is a an, a parallel auto dialer, and that was the idea of somebody that was leading the XDR team, and they're a couple layers of management below me. They discovered the, the tool, they made the proposal, you know, they they scoped out the pilot, and like by the time I even heard about the thing, the pilot was already successful, and and so I, I it depends on the size of the organization, but you know, you're talking about like we're you know mid sized SaaS company. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna respond <laughs> to anything. That's good. I love that honest answer, and I and I think the important thing that you said is that idea of a warm referral doesn't always have to come from someone in your network versus within your organization. So working your way up and and you know mapping out that organization is an important skill. My last question for you today, Rob, uh, is really about balance. You already hit on on the challenges of waking up and trying to get through that entire ritual that we see on Instagram, but how do you actually achieve a separation between the grind of work and the requirements that you have for your life? Yeah. Well, this is, this has been a journey for me too. And in the early days of Salsify, my wife was in medical training and I was, you know, I'm a co-founder of this company in early days, trying to stand a company up from zero, go from zero to one is just grueling. And so there was a set of years where all I did was work. All she did was work. And that was fine. Right. Then we had our daughter who's now six and you know, we had to sort of make room for her. My wife was still in medical training because medical training takes forever. So she's still doing overnights, uh, 24 hour plus shifts at the hospital um, and all that sort of stuff. She's working weekends and then I'm flying around the country and uh, other days to try to continue to advance Salsify. And, um, and so we, we, had to sort of start moving things around. And now it's like, I feel like we're, we're both in a really, really good place. And I think the key to going from working all the time to being in a good place, but still you know, accomplishing what you want to accomplish is being extremely ruthless about what you spend your time on. In the early days, I could do a lot of things. Now I just, I just do not have the capacity to do a lot of things. And I've got to be intentional about that. I've got to say this, the one thing that I got to do this week that matters is this one thing and the other things, you know, they're not that important. So um, I think that like ruthless prioritization is, is a skill. Uh, you've got to, you've got to practice it. It's hard. So that's one thing. Another thing is uh, for me, exercise is 
um, lifeblood and sleep is lifeblood. And there's tons of studies about this stuff, but I'm not going to go into it. But, you know, if you're exercising every day and you're sleeping, you know, seven, eight, nine hours a night, your, your life is more or less going to be fine. And so I prioritize those above almost anything else. Yeah, there's a lot of people I know that have young kids and they seem to be able to watch every single Netflix show that comes out. And I think what's happening is, you know, they put the kid to bed at 7.30 or 8, but then they watch Netflix to 11 and then they're up at like 5.30 or 6 when the kids come. It's right. like, you know, you're, you're always tired, you know, that, you know, for me, it's like, I, we just don't watch TV anymore. We used to watch some TV together. There's just, TV does not happen. It's not a thing that exists in our, and not because I don't like it, but because there's just, you know, something had to give, right? There's a bunch of stuff at work that I don't do anymore that I used to do because there's just, this, there just isn't time. Um, but yeah, it's, I make sure every day I exercise, I make sure every night I sleep, I'm ruthlessly um, prioritizing what I do at work. I'm ruthlessly saying no to meetings where I'm not critical in the meeting. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, no, the, that's, that's a, the key that's to a it. great, great set of tips. And, and now everyone understands why you're deleting all those emails too. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about priority and it's about uh, focus. And I, I think that's the the biggest theme today, I mean, you know, from that one play that you described that got you to over a hundred million in recurring revenue, uh, to the the mindset you have in leadership and and how you get your team to focus, I I think that's a big theme coming out of this episode. And if anyone's tuning in to hear Rob's story is the first one, listen to every CMO who's been on our podcast. Everyone's got a different recipe. There's not one way to be a CMO, um, but you know, a ton of great learnings today, Rob. I I can't thank you enough for sharing, for being part of our podcast. Until next time, if you've tuned into this one for the first time, thanks so much. I hope one day you're sharing your journey here on The Marketer's Journey. You've been listening to The Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.